There are multiple ways to keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast. Through our Instagram handle, the Wolf Connection Pod, and for comments and questions, send us an email to podcast at wolfconnection.org with your comments, questions, and guest ideas for Stephen and myself. You may hear your question answered on an upcoming podcast. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. Let's talk about some more. Good evening. Good evening. Welcome. No applause necessary. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Chris Lane. I'm the CEO of Aspen Center for Environmental Studies. Good to see a sold-out room tonight. Thank you all for coming down in the rainy, snowy, cold, actually warm weather. Really. Anyway. So in, in November of 2020, the voters of Colorado approved a ballot initiative, Proposition 114. I think most of you are familiar with that which mandated the, mandated that the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission restore the gray wolf to Colorado by the end of this year. ACES was compelled to put together this event because we saw the need for community education. And ACES is also a rancher. We have Rock Bottom Ranch. And we wanted to do this before the initial release occurs this December. Our politicians, our presidents, the news media, the talk shows, they want us in this room divided, the Western Slope citizens of Colorado. But tonight, we're going to transcend the political tropes and the media hyperbole. This event is not a forum for conflict for debate, for partisanship. Rather, this is an event for facts, solutions, and compromise. That's why we're here tonight. And we're doing three things tonight. We're going to talk about solutions. They're going to protect the economies of ranchers, the economies of hunters. We're going to understand how we can restore our ecosystems back to balance. This is, as you all know, our clean air, our clean water, our clean food, our stable climate, the land we live on, the ecosystem services that keep us all alive, getting that back in balance. And thirdly, we're going to dispel the myths. We're going to bring together the facts. We're going to explain how to reduce the chance of conflict with a wolf. And if there is conflict, what do you actually do? And to better understand how we're all going to coexist with wolves because they're coming in December. We have a diverse evening planned for you tonight. We've got, we're gonna hear from our keynote speaker in just one moment. We're gonna see a collection of short films. We're gonna hold a panel discussion that is gonna be extremely interesting. And we're gonna conclude with the evening with some music and movement from a performance group out of Denver called Lost Walks. One bit of housekeeping, I wanna give some special thanks to our sponsors tonight. Number one is the McBride Family Foundation for being our premier event sponsor. Thank you, the McBrides. I know you're out there. <clears throat> yes. Thank you, the Aspen Changer Resort Association, Picking County, the town of Snowmash for their support. Thank you to the city of Aspen for making this beautiful event free to all of us. And thank you also to Harriman Construction, Wolf Connection, Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, 
Working Circle, and the Endangered Species Coalition. So, on with our keynote speaker. Her name is Dr. Joanna Lambert, and Dr. Joanna Lambert is a scientist and tenured professor of wildlife ecology and conservation biology at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where she serves also as the director of the Wild Animals and Humans Lab. She has spent her adult life traveling to some of the most remote regions of the world to study wild animals in wild places. Her research has taken it all seven continents, but her major focus has been in equatorial Africa, where she studied uh, primates, and at Yellowstone, where she studied carnivores and wolves. She has published several books, hundreds of peer-reviewed articles and on, her <clears throat> and on her research, and for her efforts, she's been elected fellow in the American Association for the Advancement of Science, as well as, and I find this interesting, as well as the fe uh, fellow in the Linnaean Society in London. That is the institution where Charles Darwin himself first presented his theory of evolution. Um, so Dr. Lambert, was, when she does have some free time, I know where she is. She's on her horse. She's off-grid. She's in rugged, wild places with her dogs and on her horse. With that said, welcome to the stage, Dr. Joanna Lambert. Thank you. Hi, Aspen. Hi, folks. Am I on? I wish I could see you better. How's everyone doing? It's going to be quite a night. It's wonderful, wonderful to be here. And thank you for that delightful introduction. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Aspen. It's gorgeous here. You guys are fancy. This is a fancy place to be. Um, so the talk that I'm going to be giving tonight is maybe kind of sort of not um, a typical wolf talk. I like to understand big picture stuff. I like to understand kind of the foundations of where things come from, basically, right? So what I'm going to do is kind of give a big kind of context for understanding the shared story of humans and wolves. And now I'm going to try and figure out how I move slides. Here we go. Um, so before I do that, though, just a bit about myself. Um, I've had, as you just heard, the extraordinary privilege of being able to work with wild animals in really wild landscapes all around the world. And these include some of the most iconic species that we have. All of these species up here are endangered. I've had the good fortune of being able to work with chimps, with elephants, with tigers, and yes, now wolves, right? And coyotes and other carnivores as well. Now I can tell you that from this experience, right, which is coming from a fairly long history, over 35 years I've been doing this in different parts of the world. And I can tell you that from this perspective, it is my experience that there is no single species on planet Earth with whom we share a more intimate and more complicated relationship than this species right here. And I want to explore that. And so just to put this into context, right? So up here, you're seeing chimpanzees. This is our closest living relative, right? Pretty spectacular. Right here, we see African elephants, the world's largest land mammal. And here we have tiger, right, responsible for killing over the last 200 years or so upwards of 380,000 people and continue to kill about, on average, about 100 people a year. So we've got these extraordinary animals, uh, extraordinary animals around the world 
are increasingly bumping up into human landscapes, right? And here, this is a, a schoolhouse near where I work, where children were terrified when they looked up and saw these chimpanzees looking in, right? Uh, elephants crop raiding, tigers uh, killing humans. But despite all of these complicated and very difficult relationships that are going on around the world, again, I will just note that it's this species right here with whom we have this relationship and that conjures up a more sort of emotional set of, of, of you know, interactions and discussions than any other. Not tigers, not elephants, it's this one right here. There's something about wolves that resonates very, very deeply with us as a species, us as a species and us as individuals. So what I wanna do tonight is explore this. Big picture, where does this come from? Why do we have this particular relationship? It's just a species, it's just Canis lupus, right? So I want to explore this um, and reflect on this unique relationship that humans have with gray wolves. And the, I'm going to first start off by situating the human wolf story in deep time and then trace this story through to the present. And then, very fittingly for where we're sitting right now here in Colorado, I want to address where we are now with the human wolf story in today in Colorado and how we got here, right? So provide kind of some, some history. So I'm gonna start off with an image here. Um, this is an image uh, that comes from a region of the planet known as Berengia. So Berengia is, and this is a, a photograph uh, that is extant, it uh, was recently taken. And this uh, relates to a part of the planet um, that is essentially connecting or has connected over the, uh, over the millennia, the, the, the continent of Eurasia with the continent of North America. This has been an incredibly important region of the planet. Of course, this is how humans first settled into North America over 20,000 years ago, right? The other reason why I'm bringing this up right now is because it is in this area of the planet in this region known as Berengia that we start getting the first and most ancient fossils of, of Canis lupus. This is where wolves evolved, right? Somewhere um, right around Fairbanks, the fossils date to about 800 to 800,000 years to about 1 million, and then over in the eastern portion of Siberia at about 1.1 million, so they evolved there. And then from that region of the planet, uh, Berengia, they moved into Eurasia, making it to regions of Western Europe by about 400,000 years ago. And meanwhile, did the same thing entering into North America, sort of de depending on where you are, over the course of, um, say, 100 and 300,000 years, they start to do quite well here. So, when, and speaking of quite well, what, what you're looking at here is kind of an image of what wolves were dealing with at the time, and I'm gonna talk about this in a little bit. This is just an interaction between gray wolves and dire wolves, right? Ultimately, it was gray wolves that prevailed, and they have now become, um, in, you know, over, over the millennia, um, one of the most widely distributed species in the Northern Hemisphere, like ourselves. So the, 
um, what was going on with ourselves, speaking of ourselves, is that meanwhile we were doing our own thing, evolving as at, we are quite a baby species. We evolved about 200,000 years ago. And then we made our way into Eurasia between, say, 30 and 70,000 years ago, depending on what part of the continent uh, you're looking at. Now, there had been other more primitive versions of hominins that had left Africa and had been in Eurasia before that, Neanderthals. But again, we were the species that prevailed. So if you're thinking, if you've got that timeline in mind, then what this suggests is that gray wolves were abundant in Europe by about 400,000 years. Humans show up at about 70 to 30,000 years. The implication of this, right, is that humans and wolves have shared landscapes throughout our entire history of occupying the Northern Hemisphere, right? So that is a long and deep history. So a couple of other things that are important to the story, right? So first of all, the time, during this time in Eurasia, in North, uh, North America, there was a very fierce and very large predator guild. We were one of those predators. We were this, we come from an ancestry of big game hunting. Right? We were hunting alongside animals like saber-toothed cats, like short-faced bears, like cave lions, like multiple species of wolves. This was a time during our Earth's history uh, that is known by paleontologists as the Great Wolf Event. Again, gray wolves ultimately prevailed. And another sort of in a twist, a really, really fascinating twist, to the story, between about 30 and 40,000 years ago, we start to find, and this is, we know this genetically, we know this archeologically, paleontologically, we start to find signals of dog, of wolf to dog domestication. And there's a whole long story behind that that we don't have time for, but in short, there were some wolves, clearly not all wolves, right? We still have wild wolves. Some wolves overcame their fear of humans to hang out near humans, near where humans had a kill site, say of a woolly mammoth, right? And me, and you know, sort of showing up to where humans were to scavenge. And then meanwhile, humans were kind of figuring out the utility of having this kind of wolf dog, proto dog um, around for uh, predator protection and ultimately cooperative hunting. And we know this archeologically. So there, the upshot of this, is that for all of our history of sympatry or, or living in the same place, we have had extremely complicated relationships with humans, with, uh, well, yeah, with humans, but with also with, uh, with, with wolves, right? Relationships that ecologists re relate to things like predator-prey interactions, right? We were a predator on the scene, gray wolves were a predator on the scene, which we, in, in many cases we were consuming the same foods woolly rhinoceros, woolly mammoth. There were times when humans killed wolves. We have evidence of this paleontologically. That means we had this predator-prey relationship. We were also in competition with wolves, right? And it also means, and again, in this twist, that we engaged at times in cooperative hunting with this animal. And through time, this animal became our companion. Right? So what this means is that we've got this complex set of interactions which yields complicated attitudes, diverse attitudes. This is not a new phenomenon with this particular species. 
So, leaping ahead, at, uh, ahead, I want to turn to a time in our Earth's history where everything changed. Our relationship with everything wild on this planet began to change at about 11 to 10,000 years ago. This was, of course, about the time when humans figured out how to domesticate, not wolves, Actually, wolves started that story 30,000 years ago. But in the case of all other domesticated species, this started to arise at about 10,000 years when we start getting goats and sheep and cattle, uh, domesticated crop, crops. So humans, with their domesticated livestock and crops, were able to settle into permanent, uh, permanent settlements, which required the building of fences, which required the building of walls right, to keep predators out. So this would have also been the time where some important cognitive shifts were going on within humans, right? Where the distinction between wild animals and not wild animals started to arise, domesticated animals versus wild animals. And of those wild animals, this was about the time when humans started to make the distinction between wild animals you kill and eat and wild animals that you kill to protect your livestock. Right. So out of this time, then, we get uh, the first indicators of predator control, right? to keep predators away from what is keeping us alive in the form of, of crops and domesticated animals. So predator control, then, has been around for a long time. And in those regions of the planet, i.e., namely uh, Western Europe, predator control was extremely effective. So that by the time we get to sort of the 1500s, 1600s, the vast majority of the predator guilds of portions of Central and Western Europe are gone. Right, so grizzly, uh, brown bear, which are essentially grizzly bear, Eurasian lynx, and gray wolves are extinct by about the 16th and 17th and 18th century in regions of uh, Eurasia. So continuing on with the story of, of humans moving around, right, this predator control ethic and the, and the sort of uh, history of it arrives to North America at the time that Western Europeans began to colonize the continent of North America, right? Of course, there were humans already here, but this predator control ethic was not in place here because for the, for the vast majority of human occupation of this continent, before white settlers arrived, there were, most, um, most individuals were engaged in hunting or gathering, and this mass sort of preda uh, predator control was not occurring. But when we ca came over in, uh, in the sort of movement towards the West, in the aspiration towards manifest destiny, that predator control continued on, and it, it worked, right? We, as you know, we, uh, we, don't, we don't have predators in vast swaths of, of the United States. And it was very intense and effective in that we were adding new tools into the toolbox of controlling predators to protect our, our livestock and our crops, in that we added in poisons and certain kinds of traps. And what took thousands of years in Western Europe took place in about 200-ish years here in the United States. Uh, what you're looking at here is an image of the last wolf um, that was killed in the 1940s in Colorado, 
right? And I'm sure that many of you are aware of, of this. We have lived without wolves for some time. And just as every action has a reaction, just as every you know, sort of set of behaviors that we have has consequences, our predator control, it wasn't just wolves, of course, right? We were, we were getting all apex predators, meso predators, et cetera. And this had consequences for the world that we live in. Of course, namely, we've got transformed landscapes, right, all over. Um, but it also meant that from an ecological perspective, we had fundamentally changed the ways in which other species interact in food webs. We had removed entire sort of uh, sections of food webs out when we pulled out apex predators and mesopredators and the like, right? Which had consequences then for all of the prey species that those predators were consuming. And so we enter into the 20th century, and this was noted by many, many animal managers, this vast sort of overabundance of prey species that were engaged in a lot of overgrazing. And so starting in the 20th century, sort of early to mid 20th century, the likes of Aldo Leopold and others were taking note of what happens when you take out predators. Of course, there are sociocultural consequences as well. In the, in too numerous to, to outline, lost traditions for indigenous populations who had lived with, uh, near and among predators. Many of these species were culturally profoundly significant. And, but more importantly, and where I want to go, or not more importantly, but where I want to go more, is um, the fact that for many generations, humans have lived without predators around. When you live without something, you lose the knowledge of that something, right? We have lost our familiarity with what it means to live in landscapes with other species that are in this predator guild, right? Or were, historically. Lost knowledge results, we know this from a lot of work in psychology, if you don't know something, that thing can be a thing to fear. If you have no idea, it's like the, the inky blackness of, of, of unknowns, which can then yield, again, in turn, diverse attitudes. Now, I, need to, I would be remiss if I did not situate this within a broad, even bigger picture situation that's going on on planet Earth today. Because the reality is, is that we are living through the sixth extinction, as it's been called. Right? We are living through the biodiversity extinction crisis. I could talk a lot about this, um, but in short, of the 8 million terrestrial species that are known to science or have been named to science, 1 million of those are on the brink of extinction or near extinction. We know this from a massive report that was put out a couple years ago uh, by the UN. Right? So we are now, the good news is that we are doing something about this. We are aware of this right, this extinction crisis, and we are attempting to restore some of what we lost. Now, this started really um, in, in the 60s with, a, with a, 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 an ethic of, of thinking about uh, planet Earth and its uh, wild resources. In 1973, of course, we get the Endangered Species Act. Now, around the world, not just in Colorado with wolves, but around uh, different parts of the United States and on um, almost all continents, we have so-called rewilding campaigns to put things back whence they came. Now, with regards to wolves, 
the story behind wolves and our attempt to sort of redress what we had done is uh, they were one of the first species to be listed on the Endangered Species Act. And of course, in, in, in a, one of the most um, uh, famous and successful restoration projects ever, right, wolves were reintroduced, restored back into Yellowstone. And this is, this is an image that you're seeing here of that, um, of that historic event. So this brings us to where we are now in Colorado, right? a little bit closer in time. We've already leaped through a million years. Um, and of course, it almost goes without saying, but I'll bring it, I'll, I'll bring it up again. This um, relates to, of course, Proposition 114, where probably most, maybe not all, but most of you voted one way or another on this proposition that is now Colorado law. Right, it is uh, statute 33-2-105.8, that's a mouthful. Um, and I won't go into it uh, ad nauseum. We've got experts here that will be talking about this, but of course, uh, this requires uh, the reintroduction of wolves to Colorado by December 23. And it also mandates that the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, CPW, uh, the CPW Commission implement a recovery plan following statewide hearings and using the best available science, and that's where we're at right now. That draft wolf restoration and management plan came out on December 9th. It is now in the hands of the CPW Commission. Um, it is being reviewed, it is being finalized, and um, as I understand it, the finalized version will be coming out in April uh, 23. We have CPW folks here who will be able to uh, address that um, explicitly. So why Colorado? I get this all the time. Why Colorado, right? It could have happened anywhere else. Um, and the first part, that looks pretty pixelated right now, but the first part that I want to show is um, that Colorado is essentially the missing piece in wolf population connectivity from Mexico to Alaska, right? And what you're looking at here is super washed out, but down here we have a population of Mexican gray wolves. Up there we have the population of northern Rockies that dispersed out of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And what you see here is the red line, the hatch line, that's kind of indicating where that missing uh, piece is, and of course, Colorado is right there. Right, so that's a big part of it. Um, ideal habitat and incredibly abundant prey base, right? We've got the uh, largest elk herd in the country. We've got one of the largest deer herds uh, in the country. Putting wolves back into Colorado, the idea as an ecologist, it is a, it's more than just an, an idea, this is founded on a lot of really, really great work in science is that by putting apex predators back into systems, this restores ecological integrity of those systems and also by putting wolves back into the area that they used to be up until whatever, 100 years ago or thereabouts, redress our past actions and honor First Nations cultural lifeways by putting it back a species of cultural significance. So I know probably a lot of folks are thinking, but wait a minute, Lambert, it's not 30,000 years ago, and this is not Yellowstone, and that is absolutely the case. In any, any initiative to do something great, to do something epic, to do something historical, there are challenges. This is in any enterprise, 
that humanity has ever engaged in. And it is true, there are challenges with this, not least of which we have been living without predators, without wolves for several generations. We lack the knowledge. We don't know how to do this. We're trying to kind of figure it out, right? Uh, we've lost the familiarity of how to do this. There are differing attitudes about this. This is not new. As I indicated, there, you know, this has been going on since we have lived in an, and with a, among wolves throughout all of history. Importantly, the costs and the benefits of having wolves in Colorado are not evenly distributed. And across all sides, no matter what your perspective, there are concerns about trust, right, and about whose voice is being represented. And everybody wants to be heard, right? So what I have learned in 34, almost 35 years of, of being a conservation biologist in different parts of the world is that the best thing to do when there are difficult circumstances is to show up and build trust by being like we are here in this room, right? And having difficult conversations and engaging in collaborative interactions. And the good news is that this has been going on in a very deep and meaningful way in Colorado for several years already, and they will continue, right? Tens of thousands of public comments going in online, commission meetings that have been going on, uh, all kinds of um, town halls, webinars, workshops that have been going on that represent thousands of hours of interaction amongst folks um, that have differing opinions. Uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife put, had a stakeholder advisory group that worked together to inform that plan. And these were individuals with varying interests, many of those individuals coming from the Western Slope, right? Uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, multiple nonprofits and others have already been working with impacted communities to figure out solutions. So I'll pretty much end here by saying this has been a long wolf and human story, uh, human uh, wolf story, right? And the next chapter of that story is about to unfold right here, right, in, in our home state of Colorado. Uh, there are going to be challenges. There will continue to be, but there are also going to be incredibly meaningful interactions of people coming together to try and figure out how to make this work and how to get some wildness back into a place that is dominated by our species. Right. I would argue, ultimately, I will end by saying that we can get through this, that it requires grace, it, it requires compassion, it requires a lot of hard work, it requires difficult conversations, just, just showing up is part of that. But it is my emphatic belief right, that we are poised uh, to, to unfold the most remarkable chapter of human wolf stories that, that we've had and that we will be forwarding one of the most uh, forward-thinking 
conservation and animal management plans that I have ever witnessed, right, in all of my work over the years. So I will end on that note and thank you very much for your grace and compassion and your, and your time this evening. It has been lovely. You've got a whole night of an incredible people that are coming on. I do just want to note uh, there's a great set of tables out somewhere in this amazing building. I don't know where. Um, but I did also just a couple of plugs uh, in support of non-lethal and human wolf conflict reduction. I would encourage you to take a look at Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, Colorado State University's Wolf Conflict Reduction Fund. If you are interested in supporting the science of wolf behavior in human landscapes, uh, this would be for my students and myself and collaborators. Um, you please, I would encourage you to just kind of look into some of these opportunities. Um, and there's lots and lots more information outside um, on the tables. And I will end there. And thank you very much. To embark on a journey where we would reintroduce an animal that hasn't been here for 100 years, where do we find that balance? How do we keep the state uh, healthy and diverse? And sometimes I think it's, it's not about going forward. Sometimes I think it's about going back. So you do hear a lot of concerns from mm -hmm. hunters sure. about the numbers of wolves, and how do you, how do you address those? Well, sure, and they're valid concerns, but here's what we know. Colorado has more public land and a bigger prey population for gray wolves than anywhere in the world. There is no doubt with an average of nearly 760,000 elk and deer in Colorado, there are plenty of elk and deer for the recreational hunter and the gray wolf. Well, Bo's about as old as I am. Nothing special, but uh, still shoots straight. Hunting for me has always been about spending time out in the country. And seeing the animals and seeing the landscape as it is naturally. 20 years ago, if someone had asked me, could we accommodate a, a major predator like a wolf in Western Colorado, I'd have probably had the same knee-jerk reaction that a lot of people have and say, no, there's no room. We'd have too many conflicts. You know, it's just so hard to sneak up within 20, 30 feet of a, of a wild animal like an elk. And they're very, very strong, very powerful, tremendous eyesight, great hearing. We've got a big, big herd. We manage it really with, with hunting to kind of take the place of the major predator that isn't here anymore. People uh, kind of wonder, are a major predator like a wolf going to make hunting more difficult? Having the landscape work the way it's designed to work, having a natural predator-prey relationship, that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, the wolves, they go after the weak and the sick, and that's, that's the role they play. This landscape evolved with the full complement of predators. My dad used to say there's, there's lots of common sense in the world because nobody ever uses any of it up. Maybe doing something like reintroducing wildlife that we've lost. My family's been in Colorado for a lot of generations. We're still looking at the same landscape, some of the same water drainages, some of the same wildlife herds. We've learned some things about how this 
this country functions. Everyone loves a good story. One of our favorite characters is the big bad wolf. But what if our fairy tales don't get it right? Think of a mother wolf. She's not interested in huffing and puffing and blowing your house down. She needs to find her own home. If her pack comes across Little Red Riding Hood in the woods, she'd make sure that her family keeps their distance and avoids conflict. Her life is full of hardship. Less than 10% of hunts are successful. Life expectancies are low. Our stories created a monster. These myths drove us to fear the wolf. By the 1950s, a population of almost half a million in the lower 48 was nearly exterminated, and more was lost than just the wolf. You can't pull a character without changing the whole plot. Remove wolves, and herd numbers can explode. Rivers can erode. How wrong our narrative has been. In 1973, on the brink of extinction, wolves were one of the first animals to gain protection under the U.S. Endangered Species Act. We'd begun to understand the truth. Wolves don't attack. They avoid us. Cattle are many times more likely to be killed by bad weather than by wolves. Wolf is making a comeback. They're tracing the shores of the Great Lakes, climbing the northern Rockies, roaming the southwest, but there's a missing link. The reintroduction of wolves to Colorado would restore the natural balance. It's time for a new chapter. voices were first heard upon this land. It was the wolf and ours. Mesa Verde is known to us Hopi as Tao Toyota, meaning the place of the song. And once our songs and the wolf fill those valleys, the songs echo in the canyon. That's why we call it where the echoes come back when we're singing. And it was the wolf that would be howling. And those voices come back to us in the form of echoes. The Hopi people, ever since we came here to this fourth world, we were told by our creator, the Masao, to take care of Mother Earth. Our culture is holistic. Everything is connected. And so that's why we have to have this, this balance. 
other tribes throughout North America, we all have the same beliefs, same philosophies, same prophecies. If you remove a species out of the, the circle of life, that would create an imbalance in the ecology. Certain species may also suffer because that one's important species is no longer in that balance. The wolf also has a significance in all of Native American culture. It's an icon, and we pray to that. We regard him as a critical part of our life. And so we need to protect them, honor them, respect them, because they have a purpose. Because I am Hopi, I, am, I have this mandate from my, my creator, the Masao, to fight for and speak for those species that cannot speak for themselves. The vote is, is the, the beginnings of this awesome responsibility that we all have. Respect, revere the species. Work together, do what you can to preserve the species because it's a part of you. You are a part of this world, so is the wolf. You know, recognize that and it's his place. He is indigenous to this, this area. Set an example for the rest of the world. What you're doing in Colorado and that you can do it. Thank you, Dr. Lambert. What an enlightening presentation. Thank you. She's back there. She can hear you. Um, proceeds from the event tonight benefit ACES Tomorrow's Voices program. And before I tell you what that is and before we get to the panel, um, the event is also in honor of two extraordinary human beings, two people who are lifelong educators, who else can, who, who's an educator in the audience? Real quick, a round of applause for all educators. Thank you, thank you all educators. And the two people I'm talking about right now were lifelong educators, uh, altruistic people, two civic-minded people, two friends of ACEs and two friends of mine that I think about still to this day, every day. So I want a round of applause for Aaron Truck and Willard Clapper. We miss them. Willard, Willard was the founder of Tomorrow's Voices program more than 20 years ago. Aaron Truk um, worked for ACES, was our education director, and supervised as well. Um, Tomorrow's Voices, a college-level course for juniors and seniors in high school from Aspen to Glenwood Springs. They meet in Carbondale every Monday night. These are uh, for college, college credit in partnership with the University of Colorado Denver. And this is a discussion-based course where students explore the intersection between social justice and the environment and find the power of their own civic voices. And I can't think of anything more powerful and beneficial to our world today than that exact thing. You're 18 years old, you got all this brain power, now what are you gonna do with it? So thank you to Tomorrow's Voices, and this is one of the programs of ACES. And 
what I hoping you guys would do, and what I learned, if you're over the age of 50, even you can, even I can do it. Anyone can do this. You aim your camera at that QR code. I learned it. I was shamed that I didn't know how to do it. You aim your camera at it, and a, a link pops up, and you click on the link. So I want you guys to do that right now. If, you, if you're willing to donate right now or support this program, do it right now. I'm going to give you a minute, and you can do it later if you want. You can do it after the show. Um, but in honor of uh, Willard and Aaron and this program that's outstanding, I have to not block that, I've been warned. Um, so I'll give you one minute before we move on. If people donated, if everyone donated $20, we'd raise $10,000 tonight. I'll give you one more minute. <clears throat> we also have an ACES table in the lobby as well. So after the event, you can learn more about what we do. Okay, and you can also do this later. I know it'll take a minute. You can do it later tonight as well. But so let's get on to the panel discussion. Um, ACES has invited a number of special guest speakers from around Colorado, each with unique stakeholder perspectives. The discussion tonight will be moderated by John Kalfa III. John is the podcast host of The Wolf Connection. He's a staff member of the Wolf Connection organization in California. He has interviewed wolf experts, ranchers, scientists, journalists, and more about living with wolves. And I'll let him tell you more about our, our guest panelists. Um, the panel is going to be about 45 minutes, and then we'll have about 10 or 15 minutes for questions. But we're not doing raise your hand questions. These questions were already submitted, and we've selected among all the questions that were submitted. Um, if you have more questions of all our panelists, we're going to go right downstairs and have a beer after this, and you'll see them at the public house if you want to talk to them. And they'll be here as well after the event. Uh, so with that said, John Kalfa, welcome to the stage. Yeah, round of applause. Thank you, John. Yes, appreciate it, buddy. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, I, I want to thank uh, Chris. Thank you for that introduction. And, and firstly, want to thank ACES for inviting uh, myself and Wolf Connection out to uh, this incredible event, and thank you for all of you for, for coming here and, and joining this incredible conversation. So please give yourselves a round of applause for, for making it here. I know the weather was a little um, inclement there. Um, our organization, um, as Chris said, we're based in Los Angeles, California, uh, a little bit north of, of Los Angeles, and we rescue wolves and wolf dogs, and when we give them permanent sanctuary there with us. And we use those wolf stories to really empower youth, adults, and the organization to reach their highest potential all around Los Angeles, California, uh, and globally. Our impact uh, is widespread. We reach veterans, uh, the Department of Mental Health, Los Angeles uh, Unified School District, uh, and people around the globe in, in with the podcast. So with our podcast, as Chris said, we've interviewed individuals and groups across the entire wolf spectrum. Um, and it's enveloped ourselves really in this wild wolf conversation. And again, being able to bring out this awesome panel, we were having great conversations in the, in the green room and, and watching that presentation by, by Joe. So you guys are in for a real treat here. Um, a little bit more about our, our organization, our founder, Teo Alfaro. A bunch of our staff have made the trip from California here. We had a table set up outside. Those of you, if you visited us beforehand or after the presentation's over, please stop by our table. If you guys have any questions about the work we do, 
the places that we're going, uh, the things that we're saying, uh, please stop by, ask us any questions you want. We have uh, multiple staff members that can really answer those questions and dive into it. Um, and the work we're doing to promote this coexistence with wolves and humans. Uh, so now uh, I have the incredible pleasure of introducing this amazing panel. And uh, I'm sure some of you have met some of them before or heard about them before, but now you guys are gonna get to see on these wonderful chairs in back of me. Uh, so our first panelist, he's a rangeland scientist who founded both Shining Horizons Land Management and his nonprofit uh, project, Reintegrating uh, Wildness, and he's a part of the Northern Rockies Conservation Cooperative, Matt Barnes. <laughs> already beat me out there to it. Uh, our next uh, panelist, he's a wildlife program manager at the San Juan Citizens Alliance and former Colorado Division of Wildlife employee. His work is focused on threatened and endangered species management, Gary Skiba. She is the director and co-founder of Working Circle, which is an organization dedicated to ensuring wolves, livestock, and people can coexist and thrive long-term on shared lands. Karen Vardaman. This next individual uh, has a combined 50 years of family landowner experience uh, on the LK Ranch with the state of Colorado's Ranching for Wildlife program, and they manage a 13,000 plus acre property outside of Meeker, Colorado. He is Lenny Klingelsmith. And finally, we have, he is the Area 8 Wildlife Manager at Colorado Parks and Wildlife. His area of management includes Pitkin, Eagle, and Garfield County. He is Matt Yamashita. So now that we have all of our panelists here, we're actually gonna, I'm gonna have Matt, I don't know if you wanna stand up or come over here, I wanna do it, Matt. Uh, so he, before we get to the panel discussion, he's just gonna give everyone a short update, uh, where the plan is at, uh, and sort of the course of trajectory of where it's at right now. So I hand it over to Matt Yamashita. Thanks, Sean. Um, appreciate everybody turning out here and, and talking about wolves. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna give you kind of a quick recap on where we've been. I don't wanna, repeat everything that Chris told you that, that um, Joanna was talking about earlier, but I mean, most of you are aware of, of some of the historical context related to the, the proposition, um, where that led us with the state statute being implemented. What I'm here to just briefly introduce you to is CPW's role in that. So you guys are aware about the vote. Fast forward, the um, CPW and Parks and Wildlife Commission are guiding, kind of our guiding body. body. They, um, they created two panels. So one was a, a stakeholder advisory group referenced as the SAG. Um, that was a, a group that was comprised of several people within Colorado, varied interest perspectives. The other group was the TWIG, um, TWG, and that was a technical working group. That group was, was composed of several members of, of different industry professionals, wildlife professionals from across the U.S. that currently manage wolves, that have managed wolves, that know a heck of a lot more than current CPW staff knows about what we're doing with wolves. Um, mo many of them have been a part of wolf reintroduction um, projects in other locations. Those two groups, the, the reason for bringing them to the table was to help inform us. I mean, why reinvent the wheel? If they've already been through it, they've, they've learned some of those lessons. We wanted to know what they've learned, why they've learned it, how they learned it, what the hard knocks were, what their successes were. So those groups were convened in order to help inform CPW staff and the Parks and Wildlife Commission um, as we drafted a plan 
for the reintroduction and management of gray wolves in Colorado. That group met in, in most of 2021, um, up until the, the time when the draft plan was released to the Parks and Wildlife Commission, it was presented and released in December 2022. Uh, hopefully, many of you have had a chance to at least look at that, review it, um, have heard about it. There's multiple concepts in that plan. So Parks and Wildlife Commission recognized the, the importance of that plan and the detail that was included in there. And as a result, they in instigated an additional five, um, five Parks and Wildlife Commission meetings, public meetings that were held across the state here the last two months. Those meetings were specifically designed to kind of recognize the complexities that were embedded in this plan. Um, additionally, they, wanted, they, they also saw that public, public comment, public opinion wasn't done with the vote. It wasn't done with, the, with some of the other drafting of things. So that was another additional opportunity. Um, I know that Joanna was talking earlier about how many comments were solicited and received. It's been, I mean, they're numbering in literally tens of thousands of comments. Those comments are currently being reviewed and embedded into some of what's being taken into consideration in moving from this draft plan towards a final plan. Um, along the same time frame, right now currently, starting in February here last month, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is also embedded into some of our process. Currently, wolves are a, a federally listed species. They're protected under the Endangered Species Act. As a result, m much of this plan, our, our Colorado plan, is hinged on the 10-J rule. I'm sure some of you have heard that reference. What that is is it's a, it's a non-essential experimental population of wolves. Um, that would allow Colorado to embed some of our management into what, we're, what we'd look at doing. Right now, um, federal, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they have proposed that 10-J status uh, for Colorado. That was announced in February, I believe, 17th. And they're accepting public comments. They are hosting public meetings. They had one last night in Grand Junction. I believe they have another one coming up here in Craig and a third one in Walden. Um, they've got an open comment period coming up in through April, soliciting public comment participation. And then they will, in turn, go and propose a, um, the ruling of whether 10J will be or won't be granted to Colorado for the reintroduction of gray wolves. Next step of the process for us is while that is occurring, we're still moving ahead. We have a timeline to adhere to, um, and so we're looking as an agency, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, we will be moving forward with our draft plan. The Parks and Wildlife Commission is taking all those comments and everything into consideration, reviewing it, providing in input and feedback to staff over the next couple commission meetings. Um, then in May, May 3rd and 4th, here in Glenwood Springs, they will host the meeting, um, I, I, location to be determined, but they're gonna host the meeting here in Glenwood on, and they're gonna vote as a commission on whether they accept or deny the plan after that, we will know if they accept it, it will be our, our final plan. That's the plan that staff will use as guidance as we move forward. Assuming that that plan is accepted, staff will spend the next several months moving forward to December of 2023. In pri primarily our biggest focus, um, we're gonna be looking at two different things. One of them is relocation sites. So local staff, field staff, we're gonna be looking at some of these sites on where we could potentially host those, that species. Um, some of our other staff will be looking at how they, they embed, uh, where they solicit these animals from, how they get them down here, um, you know, all the, all the nuances involved with that. And then the, the last component of it will be, as an entire agency, we're going to be looking to engage with 
additional stakeholder groups, the same stakeholder groups that we've already heard from, but other ones, recognizing you know, the importance of the community in this whole process. Um, participants like yourselves, even the people that aren't aware of it but need to be aware of it, having to provide some of that awareness, education, everything else, just making sure that people understand what it means, what it's going to mean, and where we're going to go with it. So that's going to be the staff priority moving forward. The goal is to have wolves on the ground by next December. So there's a lot to be covered, done, everything between now and then. Um, but I just wanted to make sure you guys kind of knew where we were, had been, where we're going, et cetera. Panelists are going to answer all the other questions. I'm done. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Matt, for that update. Uh, so yeah, as Matt said, we're going to get into uh, really some of the main topics that we feel that were you know, present uh, through our discussions and uh, that, that really are going to alleviate um, some of the pressure here about what's going on. But we're going to jump right into it. Um, and we're going to start off with a really wolf uh, and livestock conflict and how that is going to uh, shape Colorado going forward here. Um, We've all seen that, you know, where wolves and domestic livestock co-occur, conflicts, they do arise, uh, depredations can happen, and things of that sort. And, and really, I want to pose this to Lenny first um, to get your, really, the concerns um, that the local ranching community has now that wolves are going to be introduced, and what are some of the, you know, steps that the ranching community is looking to take to prepare for that, and what are some of the concerns that you guys are, are looking at um, as this plan moves forward? All right, thank you, John. Um, where to start on this? Um, there's a lot of angst, a lot of uh, worry amongst the, you know, the livestock producing communities um, on how this will play out. This is a difficult topic to get your finger on what is reality because the information and stories that you hear have such a wide spectrum from complete disaster to it's not a big deal. So I think we're trying to prepare, and I give Colorado credit. I think this process with the stakeholder group and the TWIG was a, was a good idea. Lots of public input, lots of information. I feel good that the plan is designed to achieve success from both sides. So hopefully, I guess my goal and my hope is that the public will get behind it and support and trust CPW and the ranching community to be reasonable. Um, I guess on a philosophical note, I think it's really important to maintain the open space that's left in Colorado, and a lot of that involves livestock production and big game hunting. And now it's going to involve wolves, and how do you dovetail all of that together and maintain financial stability for open space to prevent people from tipping over the edge and deciding, all right, I'm cashing in my development rights. We'll chop this riparian area into 35-acre parcels and put houses on it, and I'll be rich. That is going to be more harmful to wildlife than anything. So, thank you. So I'm hopeful we can find a way to do that in Colorado because there's a misconception, I think, that all livestock producers hate wolves. It's, it's not wolves. It's, it's the impact that we could experience, and it's going to be 
a select few certain producers are going to get picked out to be denned on and receive the majority of the of the the problems and those are going to be stressful um i'll wrap up with a, it's i spent a week in montana traveling some of those valleys that have learned how to produce livestock with large predators and i learned got a ton of information statistics the one thing that stuck in my mind was one guy said all these studies have been done nobody studied what happened to the divorce rate amongst ranchers <laughs> and he said, I can tell you from experience, it went way up. <laughs> and I shared that story with a U.S. Fish and Wildlife personnel. And he says, huh, that's interesting. The same thing happened with my colleagues. So please be patient with all of us. Support us. Matt and I are going to be in the heat of it. My wife's here. I hope she'll stick with me. <laughs> so anyway, that's kind of where we're coming from. Yeah, and, and that's a great point, uh, Lenny. And I want to uh, go to, to Karen and, and Matt Barnes here really to, to talk about some of those concerns. What are some of, we'll go to uh, Karen, we'll hit you first, and then Matt, because uh, you, the, you were on the SEG, the Stakeholder Advisory Group. What are some of the measures, Karen, that you and Working Circle, because you, you, were, we were you and Lenny were having a great conversation in the green room before this, just explain some of the measures that are going into the preparedness aspect of this and making sure that they have the tools to be able to combat any sort of depredation that comes their way and to even prevent that from even happening moving forward as these wolves start to get their paws on the ground. Um, certainly. Well, you know, Lenny talked about it a little bit. You know, the concept of coexistence is often oversimplified <laughs> and there is nothing simple about it. And we're always learning and we're figuring things out as we go along and we have to adapt. I think one of the key things on the social side is for folks to really understand that whole story, understand the realities of the ground, understand the valuable role that ranchers play. If we want wolves to succeed, you know, we need these private lands and understand that these are people, you know, um, making a living and taking care of the landscape and ensuring that private lands allow for that wildlife connectivity. As far as what we try to do in supporting that is, one thing is we're very fortunate that in the last even five years alone, we've come a long way in having a better understanding of wolf-livestock interaction and based on how wolves hunt. And so I think it's really important as we move forward, it's great to look at other states to see how they've done things historically, but we also don't want to fall into the Einstein thing, <laughs> doing the same thing the same way and expecting a different result. We have an amazing opportunity here. And by really understanding what's happening on the landscape and supporting ranchers in a manner that makes sense to them, you know, trying to deter wolves over thousands of acres, is pretty difficult trying to control wild wolves, you know. So let's focus on how we can look to supporting the ranchers from the bottom up in a community-based way that supports the ranch operations. You know, we can keep putting out continued amount of unsustainable resources, or we can look towards these newer, more advanced approaches and practices that actually help add value to the ranch and that could be built into the ranch operation so that ranchers can lead and manage this as they do their other um, practices. And, you know, again, we're learning, but I think by working together and coming together and recognizing that it's not a one-shoe-fits-all scenario, um, there's some amazing new um, things that we've, we're learning of how to make this work. And I'm, I'm hopeful. I believe it can work. 
And then Matt, touch on too, because Lenny made a beautiful point there about the open spaces, and that these are the open spaces that not only for the livestock and the ranching community, but also the wildlife have to have to preserve. What, what, what was that conversation like going across and talking with uh, in the SAG meetings and making sure that these wild spaces are protected and are able to support these wolves as they come in? Yeah, certainly. Uh, Lenny's absolutely right. The, the elephant in the room is not wolves, it's development. And if you look at research that's been done on wildlife habitat, on ranches, exurban sprawl, uh, ranches are, provide almost as good wildlife habitat as protected areas do, much better than subdivisions. Um, and so that's something we all care about. Everybody on the stakeholder group cared a lot about that. Um, and I, th I think an important thing about that group, if you could get Lenny and Gary and I to agree on something, it's probably a good policy. So, and, and Lenny, I think he knows that, um, you know, I hope I live to see the day when his daughters are running his ranch without those 35 acres getting cut off of it. So, and, and I think that's all really important. Um, I also think it's important to have some sense of how often wolf livestock conflicts actually happen. Of course, we don't know yet how common they will be in Colorado, but what we do know from the Northern Rockies is that it's a lot less often than one might think, um, but it can be locally severe. So it does affect some people more than others. We don't know all the reasons why that is, but we do know some of them. And the biggest thing is to figure out why some places seem to be more vulnerable and try to fix that. Uh, so, yeah, I think most of us, whether we wanted wolves or not, we all agreed that we need to address the livestock concerns. No, and, that's, and that's a good point. I want to go back to, to Lenny just for a second, because you, you and Karen, again, you guys had a great, great conversation before we got out here. And you, really talking about the, I don't want to say a trickle-down effect, but we, we were discussing how if one ranch keeps getting depredated against over and over again, we fix that problem there, and they may go to the neighbor. Is that something, Lenny, from the, the community that has been brought up? Has it been addressed? How do you, how do you feel that that's been worked on? Um, as this process has gone on? I, I think that one's a big mystery because that's what we were discussing. How I'm trying to get my mind around it, just understanding animal behavior and livestock behavior. And if a pack, which we're hopeful it's only 20% of the packs that will actually depredate livestock, that's the data we've been given. So if that's the case, and the Walden Bunch is not helping that any because we're at 100% right now, but hopefully that will be the case. How do you take that, those that are in the 20%, and if you deter them at this ranch, why do they not just go to the next one? And if that's the case, then how do you come up with enough resources, enough funding, enough to make everyone impenetrable? Over thousands, I mean hundreds of thousands of acres of rangeland that you're rotating You've, you have a strategic plan to take care of the riparian areas, manage the forage, keep your GRI scores up. Those things, how do you, how do you make all that happen together? And I don't have an answer yet, and I'm sure we're going to have some trials. But Colorado's fortunate. There's people in the north of us that have 25, 30 years of experience. And so we have to draw on that. And some of their methods are popular, some are unpopular. But we have to be humble enough to say, 
They've been doing it. They've been living it. They probably have some knowledge, even if it's not what we want to hear sometimes. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that, um, you know, it's a really good point. I can't answer necessarily the funding and resource question. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you look at wolves, you know, when they're hunting, you know, as they move around the landscape, they're constantly testing prey and looking for that vulnerability that Matt mentioned. So when you see a situation where, a, you know, a landowner is getting repeatedly hit, you know, a lot of times you can figure out what is it, what, what is that vulnerability about that, what's happening there that's not happening over here? Um, because there's a reason why that's happened. And if you could get to the root of it, versus just focusing on deterring wolves, kind of like what I was saying, you know, to the root of that and hopefully find the resources, you know, to be able to address it, hopefully you can turn that around, right? Because wolves are so risk adverse, you know, and that's, in some ways it can be easier to deal with than other ambush predators and keep them, you know, focused where they should be focused. And again, looking at that vulnerability, but, yeah, it is possible. Sometimes they will go to the neighbor if there's a vulnerability issue. But generally, we have found that if you can address it there, you know, they'll leave everybody alone. But it is important to support that as a community-wide thing, and you know, look look at the different um, approaches that make sense for the landowner. Godly. And and one more thing that I think just thinking about animal behavior and the intelligence of wolves. I think what is going to be key is this is my opinion and this is my prediction is what's going to be key is having a quick response. These, these guys are going to need the tools to say it happened. What do we do right now? Because they're so intelligent if you let that become a pattern, and I think we talked about that. If it becomes a pattern, they learned it's okay, then the problem really gets bad and that is going to be really bad for not only ranchers but the wolves. So. It's like anybody that's trained their dog, I guess. If you let them get away with it five times, it's a lot harder to break than if you do it that first time and stop it. Matt, what do you th Matt Barnes, what do you think about um, Lenny's concern there and how, how can it be addressed? Uh, in terms of the response time, has that been discussed with the SAG or is that something ongoing? Yeah, Lenny's right. Uh, the response to incidents needs to be fast, uh, in part because it's, it is important to figure out whether wolves actually killed the dead animal or not. Uh, and we've seen that already, but we'll, we'll see it a lot more when wolves are essentially everywhere in western Colorado. And, and the, the ticket is figuring out, did they kill the dead animal or did they just scavenge it after it died of something else? And then after that investigation, you figure out what you need to do about it. And so that can be addressing vulnerabilities like Karen talked about at the ranch scale, trying to figure out are there ways to, to manage this livestock herd that would make it less vulnerable, or are there ways to just try to keep these wolves away. Um, but eventually wolves will be everywhere, and so we can't put all of our eggs in the baskets of keeping the wolves away because they still have to be somewhere. And livestock are all over western Colorado. So um, there, there isn't really a safe place. It's more about making a situation where the livestock are likely to survive an encounter rather than avoid the encounter entirely. Thank you, uh, thank you, Lenny, Karen, and, and Matt for that. That's good. I'm glad we we, uh, we touched on that. Um, we're gonna go, and I, I think one thing I'll, I'll address to um, 
uh, I'll say this to Matt Yamashita down at the end because I know you did a great job uh, introducing uh, and giving us an idea where the plan's at. Um, Colorado really is a clean slate. I mean, it, and that's how you guys are approaching this, right? This is this is going to be Colorado's uh, plan, and and you guys are, are taking the I guess taking the proverbial bull by the horns and and doing it uh, the, a certain way. How do you guys feel that this is that this is going in in this torpo, uh, in this um, wolf livestock uh, conflict? Do you guys feel confident that the plan is moving forward in a, in a positive way? Yeah, it is. Um, I mean. Conversations are endless, which is, is valuable. The kind of the, the interesting component here is, you know, as a staff primarily composed of biologists by training, we want to rely on the science. Well, we don't know what that science is in Colorado. It, it's difficult for us to, to kind of gather some of that information. Um, you know, as as people in Colorado, you know how different this state is than some of the other western states that we're trying to learn from. And while they host populations of wolves there, they have livestock there, some of their systems are, there's variances and there's variability in what they have versus what we recognize here and even within our state. Um, for example, the Roaring Fork Valley is different than where Lenny calls home. Uh, you know, just some of what we host here locally is going to have some nuance to it. So there's there's some uncertainty there, but that's where what Lenny was saying, capitalizing on that adaptability clause and just being able to, to be adaptable, to react to it. The only way we're going to do this is by trial and error. We're going to have to figure things out at kind of as we go and be able to learn from that, adapt to it, and make better calls in the future um, if something doesn't go well. So that's, you know, a lot of the conversation, a lot of where that the plan is coming from is based on what we know, but there's a significant degree of unpredictability embedded in there that that's, there, there's uncertainty. Um, that's unsettling for, for folks that are science-based, um, science-minded, but I think it's, it's still workable. I think there's still a lot of positives to build on, and I don't think we're starting from ground zero. Excellent. Thank you guys. For, thank you guys for that. I think we touched on that pretty well. We're going to move to uh, Gary. We didn't forget about you. I know you're sitting there. <laughs> um, but this, this is, we're going to move to the, um, we're, the next topic we're going to touch on here is the impact on the ungulate population, elk, deer, moose, uh, here in Colorado. And Gary, since you, you've been a biologist in this area for, for quite some time, just go over, um, if you can, um, and then we'll have uh, the other panelists jump in. Um, just what you see in other states in terms of the wolf ungulate um, interactions, how the populations move around, um, do you foresee, what do you think it's going to look like in Colorado and how, what have you seen in the past and, and what can people sort of look forward to and how those populations are moving around? Great. Th thanks, John. Yeah, um, I, and I will start off with something that hopefully the audience got from Dr. Lambert's presentation. Wolves and ungulates have lived together for tens of thousands of years in Colorado since the last glaciation. And you know, anybody who's ever read Lewis and Clark's journals, while they didn't come through Colorado, they came through the West, and they always talk about how many animals there were and how many wolves there were and how many prey animals there were. The point is these animals did evolve together, and they evolved together in a way that both of them had healthy, robust populations. So what we've seen in the Northern Rockies, which is the best example that we have, um, you can look across those three states. I always think about Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. 
Those three states all have more elk, which is the primary prey of wolves, have more elk today than they did when wolves were reintroduced. Now, that's for a lot of reasons. Wolves didn't create more elk. It, 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 you know, it, it was an, a combination of things, habitat changes, the way they were managed. But the point is that in Montana, for example, they have 30% more elk than they want compared to their objectives. And those are, include areas where there are wolves. So we know that wolves and elk can survive together and can survive quite well together. And you know, the, there is something that always comes up about predation by wolves on elk or any other species for that matter, that they take the sick and the weak, which they do. They also can take healthy animals under certain conditions. And we've talked about vulnerability already with livestock and that's when it happens with um, healthy ungulates, wild ungulates is when they're vulnerable, like there's deep snow where an elk is punching through the snow, the wolves are running on top of the snow, and therefore they can um, more readily take that elk. So they can take healthy animals, but one of the reasons they take um, weak and injured or in some way impaired animals is because it's safer for them. You know, getting kicked in the head by an elk is not a good thing. And so that's the animals, you know, they try to go after animals that are more, more vulnerable in some situation, in some way. And so that's what um, we expect to see. And we think that overall, there is a real concern among um, hunters and outfitters that it will decrease the populations. That's not the experience we see. That's not what happened in the Northern Rockies. There are certain locations where it appears that wolves have kept elk populations from recovering after they've already been depressed for other reasons, like uh, poor habitat or poor winters, for that matter, or very bad winters that cause a lot of mortality. But um, you know, in the end, Elk and any other prey animal and wolves have evolved together. They belong together. So, in that in that vein, Gary, if the, if they're not if the population's numbers, let's say, aren't a problem, what is something that what are some behavior differences now that people may be seeing with the ungulate? You know, because there are already lions and bears and coyotes and other predators here in Colorado already, what differences will wolves bring to those populations in the way that they, will they be migrating differently? What's something that they can see? If the, if the numbers might stay the same, what's differences they may encounter? You, you got me to, to one of my favorite mantras, which is it's complicated. And uh, all biology, especially field biology, is very complicated. And so we can't really say exactly what is gonna happen. We can't predict that you know, to any great degree. Um, we do know, and uh, I'm sure that a lot of the folks in the audience have seen the, the film How Wolves Change Rivers, and it's a, a short video that shows what happened in Yellowstone after wolves were reintroduced, and you know, the theory is, uh, the sort of the um, Cliff's Note version, or maybe more of a caricature of it, is that wolves cause changes in prey, prey habits, particularly elk, that had been in riparian areas and spending a lot of time there and causing um, declines in the vegetation vigor. There were no um, beavers left as a result. And after wolves came back, um, the riparian areas recovered. Well, it's complicated. It's not quite that simple. We know that other things were happening. Elk populations were decreasing for various reasons outside the park, which affected the elk numbers in the park. There were changes in behavior of the elk where they weren't using the same areas in quite the same way. And so that did contribute, and that was as a result partly of wolves. Um, but it, it, it just isn't black and white. But we do know, as Dr. Lambert pointed out, that um, wolves and their prey evolved together for tens of thousands, even a million years. 
And those relationships are there, and, and animals, the prey animals, know how to react to that eventually. They, the first elk that see wolves are probably not going to figure it out right away. But eventually they will. I mean, they're not that dumb. And so, so you know, we'll, we'll see those changes in behavior, and there will be some effects, some ecological effects as a result. Um, but again, it's just not as simple as um, some people have, um, have stated it to be. It's just not a simple black and white thing. Lenny, is there any concern uh, on, your, on your end in terms of the ungulates uh, maybe shifting or moving around differently in, in terms of the livestock industry or, or, in, or in the ranch that you have currently? Is there something that you're concerned about in, when, they come out, uh, when the ungulates are around with wolves being another predator on the landscape for you guys? Yeah, and I think I would, I'd rather address it as a larger scale. You know, it's going to affect individuals differently. Um, I look at everything from a behavioral standpoint, and there's a current trend right now. When big game season goes, comes on, the, the, the human depredation goes up on the public lands immensely, and that drives those elk into the private lands. And it's making, you know, it for us, it's beneficial. It's, it uh, creates larger revenue because we have high demand for the hunting on our private lands. Now, we work with CPW, so half of our licenses are are for our private use and we resale to help us financially and half of them go to public drawing so there's a benefit to the public as well um, you know and it's a it's like an 11,000 acre deal which seems fairly large but to elk and wolves that's a drop in the bucket so they're either going to be there if wolves come through they're going to leave um, but I, what I what I would envision is there will be a there will be a tendency now there'll be uh, a predator on the landscape 12 months of the year that are different than they've seen. Uh, wolves, you know, in a, hunting as a group, traveling 30, 40 miles a day. I mean, they ha are going to have a larger impact on the behavior of the ungulates than bears and lions. So that, you know, we, I think we can predict that that exodus of ungulates from the public land onto private where, the, where there's irrigators every day and there's some human presence, there's a little more safety. You know, and this is just a, an opinion and a prediction, but I predict they'll come out of the wilderness somewhat and congregate more in the valleys that are private, which could have the opposite impact that we want because the difference, as Ms. Lambert said, you know, this isn't Yellowstone. Our major riparian areas are private, and that's where they may start congregating. So that'll be something that CPW is going to need tools to figure out how they deal with that. Um, Anyway, the risk of rambling on here, there's, the, Gary's right. There's going to be a whole lot of nuances. You know, we have orchards in the Grand Valley. What are the Grand Mesa elk going to do with 12-month predation instead of just in, in, a different, in a different context? You know, their wolves are going to be a little more like the human presence. They can cover so much country. But they've existed for years. Some will adapt. Some will stay. Some will move. Um, but, yeah, I, th I think the outfitters are really nervous, and even the agency, because, you know, I think 80-some-plus million dollars worth of their budget is elk hunting. Uh, so if that goes down simply because of the location of the elk, they're all congregated in certain places, and that goes down simply because people think, I come and hunt the public land, it's not going to be successful, I'll just go somewhere else. That could affect their income. So there's a lot of complications to it, and a lot of things we'll have to work through. It always circles me back to, to my original stance of give them every tool 
we can imagine that they might ever need and then trust them to be reasonable with it. Matt Yamashita, I want to just uh, float that to you really quick. What has it been like working um, with uh, Lenny and, and these groups to make sure that, you know, how, how is CPW going to be monitoring um, just the populations as, as those things go? I know CPW already monitors the, those ungulate herds, and is there going to be change in that, or is that going to just be, again, an ongoing um, decision for you guys to, to continue to look at those populations as things start to shift? If, if nothing else, change is inevitable. Um, with without wolves, things are going to change. With presence of another apex predator, there will be some change. Uh, Gary hit the nail on the head. It's complicated. There's other factors outside of just that alone. So currently, you know, CPW staff, field staff, that's what we do. I'm sure many of you have seen, read articles, seen videos. Um, you know that we, we fly every winter and we, we do surveys and we're, we're assessing population distribution, um, kind of herd compositions, et cetera, and we're going to continue to do that. That's how we manage our ungulate herds throughout the state. That's going to be a continual process. What numbers, what results come back, that may be adaptable. One of the other components to this whole thing, um, you know, Lenny alluded to this, is the tools. And as a tool, we are already hiring professionals that are wolf-specific. Um, we have game damage specialists that, you know, for lack of a better term and given the industry I work in, we've poached from other states. Um, you know, they, they, they were great at what they did elsewhere, and so we brought them to Colorado and said, hey, do your thing here. You know, we, we could use your help. And they're already helping us frame and prepare for what we're, we're um, embarking on. We have researchers. We have... Um, we have a, a new researcher that just got hired on, and her whole specialty is in studying wolves. So, I mean, even before they're here, we already have staff that are in place that are anticipating it and are going to be paying specific attention to just that one species amidst all the other ones that, that we're responsible to manage um, for you as the public of Colorado. So there's, there's stuff coming, but we are definitely trying to the best of our ability to prepare for what that looks like how to, to work, continue to work with landowners, how to work with local governments, communities, et cetera, in order to ensure that whatever comes our way, all of us are, are facing the same direction. Uh, Matt, Matt Barnes, uh, Matt's up here, I gotta make sure. Um, anything that, uh, that was discussed in the SAG or continues to be discussed about really um, just monitoring uh, the populations or understanding the the, the plights that are coming from the hunting and outfitting community about these po about the younger populations, how that's being handled. Are there uh, plans in place, or is there still an ongoing conversation about how to um, deal with this as the the issue arises? Uh, yes, it's both. Uh, so we did talk a lot about this. It's in, in some ways the the issues with native prey are a little bit more difficult than the issues with livestock because we can all agree that we don't want wolves killing livestock, but we expect wolves to kill elk, that's what they do. Uh, but we, we do want to be responsive to the concerns of hunters and outfitters. Uh, we discussed monitoring populations, that's in CPW's draft plan. Um, and we, we don't ultimately know how many wolves are going to be in Colorado. We do have a lot of elk here. We have more elk here than Montana and Idaho combined. 
Um, we think we probably could see the day when we have a thousand wolves in Colorado, um, but we don't really know and we won't know until the wolves themselves, themselves show us how many of them can live here. And that's gonna be determined by the amount of conflict and how quickly we react to it and how well we react to it. So, um, yeah, I think these guys mostly covered it. I would add one thing. The real apex predator here is us, and, and it, what limits elk populations is human hunting, and we do that intentionally through regulatory processes at CPW. So there's objectives set for, we don't want elk populations to go below a certain number or above a certain number, and that's largely determined by the conflicts between elk and humans. So that's what really limits elk populations. It's the same thing up in Montana and Wyoming. And, and so it, it's generally not the wolves or even all the other predators combined that are the limiting factor. It's really us. Go ahead, Matt. Yamashita. Um, I'm going to add on to what Matt, Matt's last statement there. I, I think it's, it's accurate to, to frame humans as, as kind of the largest factor when it comes to any scope of wildlife management. Hunting is an aspect of that. Um, you know, hunting is, is a controllable thing that we do issue specific license numbers based on population objectives, on game distribution, on sex ratios, um, calf-cow ratios, et cetera. Um, so that's something that, it, that is monitored and kind of, you know, essentially governed. I mean, we, that we keep that in check and review that annually. One thing as humans that we, we sometimes overlook and don't monitor as closely is just what our impact is just as people. You know, what, whether that's through development, recreation, whatever it is, you know, when, when we're out there doing something, there is an intrinsic impact on the resource. And sometimes those, those aren't monitored as closely, and it's, it's more difficult to, to monitor what that impact might or might not be. Um, but that is another significant impact. So that's a large component of everything we're talking about tonight is just the human side of it and what that role is. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate appreciate you doing that. Gary, is there anything you wanted to add before we move on to to our final topic? Do you think is there anything else you want to add from a biological perspective about what we were talking about just before about these populations? I stumped him. I, I'm rarely stumped, but <laughs> no, I, I just want to reiterate that um, you know we have a species coming back that belongs here and that has evolved with its prey and that there's little reason to suspect that we're gonna have substantial negative impacts as a result. Great. Um, we are gonna move on to, uh, I believe our last topic before we get to um, some questions that were submitted. So uh, we'll, I wanna stick with you, Gary, about this because th this is really the wolf, human safety, uh, human wolf dog situation. Um, because wolves have not been in this state for almost a century, um, what are some of the there might be a lack of education about what to do if you're in, you know, if you're hiking, doing recreational activities as, Colorado, you know, as those in Colorado like to do. Is there, what are the basics that individuals or groups need to know when they're out in the woods, you know, whether it's hiking or doing recreational activities? If wolves are a factor there, what do they need to know about uh, wolves and their behavior surrounding humans and possibly under uh, canines in the vicinity? Yeah, I, where I always start with that is the point that right now we have mountain lions and bears, which can take dogs at any point, and sometimes do, 
And so there may be a little bit of a difference in the sense that wolves tend to see dogs more as a competitor, but in most cases that's not going to happen. It's only going to happen in areas where you're in a very specific situation with wolves, like at a den, where they're going to be defensive. And so um, if you're out there now and you're letting your dog run free, you're, you're taking a certain chance. You know, if your dog's off leash and is running in an area where there are lions or bears, or coyotes for that matter, or badgers even, so badgers are nasty. Um, but, uh, you know, so you, you want to think about that right now. I don't think there's a whole lot different you want to do um, as far as wolves being here um, if you're concerned about your pets. And I don't know if you wanted to talk about human safety as well. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, and, and, you know, what we know about humans and wolves in North America is we have two confirmed cases where we think one of them isn't actually absolutely positive. One is that there was a runner in Alaska who was killed by wolves about 10 years ago, and there was a young man in Saskatchewan who was killed by wolves, but we don't know why, and may have been a habituation situation in that one. And that's the issue with wolves and human safety, is wolves become habituated to people. They start to see them as a source of food. In Algonquin National Park, people were feeding hot dogs to wolves. And guess what? Some of them got bitten by wolves. And, you know, that's just the way it goes. I mean, if you are habituating the animals, they will, they, you know, you're just increasing the likelihood there's going to be a negative interaction. But as far as human safety, uh, you know, if you're not concerned about bears and lions right now, you shouldn't worry about wolves. Did you have something, Karen? Yeah, I was just, just going to say that, um, you know, obviously, wildlife's wildlife. You do have to be careful, take precautions. You do now, right? As Gary said, with a bear and lion, if you're hiking. But, you know, just for, this is just from my own personal experience. You know, if I'm out there, I'd much rather come across a pack of wolves, which I have in my work many times, <laughs> than mountain lion or a bear that are ambush predators. You know, I, I mean, obviously, you should never purposely put yourself in that situation. Um, but they are inherently, generally, not always, as we know, <laughs> can become habituated to humans, shy of humans, and don't want to have that, that conflict. They're not an ambush predator. And so in my experience in, in my work on the ground, um, close proximity with wild wolves, and it has never been an issue. So, Go ahead, Lenny. Yeah, and I'd, I'll just jump in here, because I, I guess I would just like to issue a little little stronger warning for those of you who live somewhat rurally and because just just from what's happened in Walden um, with some stock dogs being killed and they were killed close to their headquarters and so I think there is a, a higher chance it, it seems like there's a higher chance that if you live rurally or on the outskirts and your dog is outside wolves have a territorial instinct where the bears and the lions don't now, lions might, I guess lions take pets for food all the time, so that does happen the same. Mm -hmm. But I think that territorial instinct where wolves will actively hunt coyotes, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but they'll actively hunt coyotes. I think there's probably a tendency they may actively hunt a dog that's somewhat rurally based. No, absolutely. When it comes to pets, you know, if I have my dog with me, um, very, very close, or I leave them, you know, I mean, yeah. We just lost a dog in Walden just two this week, so it's does it's rare, but it, it does happen. So, you know, just like with any other wild animal, pets can be at risk. What are what are the steps, Karen, that you think from the work that you've done with coexistence and, and to Lenny's point too with, with stock dogs, what what are some measures that individuals or, or groups or, or that can that they that they can take to 
you know, try and keep those instances to a minimum or not at all? You know, just keeping their dogs close to them. I mean, I know some of the ranchers we work with in California, Montana, they have working dogs. They work their cattle. They're out all the time with their working dogs. Um, but those dogs also become aware that the wolves are there. You know, and they come right back. You know, and they often help the riders or the ranchers, like, alert them. Hey, we've got a grizzly bear or wolves out there. Um, but, you know, these dogs aren't used to having this predator. So keeping them close to home, bringing them in at night, you know, especially. Um, I think what happens is when, you know, dogs are dogs, you know, they go out and they're, this is their territory. And then wolves think, you know, letting is right on, you know, it's, it's a competitor um, more than anything else. So keeping them close to home and keeping an eye on them. And I know it's hard, especially if dogs are used to wandering, you know, and that's a challenge with, you know, livestock guardian dogs. They've been very successful with certain predators, but um, as a warning to herders or to ranchers, but as far as, um, having a livestock guardian dog that could stand up to a wolf if it has an encounter, the wolf's going to win. So, Anything, um, Gary, from you uh, biologically that, because Lenny pointed out, obviously, about uh, the way that bears, lions, and, and wolves or coyotes react. Is there anything that it, the individuals, anybody here in the audience needs to know about how those species specifically might react to if you're on a trail, if you're somewhere, and what the differences might be, what to look out for if they're not already aware? what to look for in there. Yeah, I, I don't know that there are really any major differences in, in other than what Karen said about keeping your animals close. You know, if you, you have a dog with you in any situation and it's running off leash, you want to be sure you know where that dog is. Um, and in areas that have large predators, those chances are always there. You know, there's always a chance that, um, that, that your dog will be taken by one of those species. And um, it's... And yeah, it's just something, it's just responsible pet ownership is keeping your animal close and in those situations. And, you know, and of course there are the, the concerns and Matt could, Matt, no, Mashita could point to this, um, is there, it, it's actually illegal in a lot of cases to let your dog just run because in a lot of cases they're chasing wildlife, which is against the law. So, um, you know, there's a responsibility part of this that I think is really important to have people think about. I mean, it's one thing to be concerned about the safety of your pet or your own safety. It's another thing and something that is required for you to be concerned about the safety of other wildlife. Go ahead, Matt. Go so my whole role in all this is just to add on to all the good stuff they're throwing out there. Um, and I'm going to do it one more time. Uh, just to take the take advantage of the opportunity that everything they've stated is is great. I mean that's a it's accurate. We you know as a, a representative of Colorado Parks and Wildlife support it. Um, the one I, I would offer that most of the conflicts, the human wildlife conflicts that we as an agency respond to, especially locally here, a significant number of them are tied to dogs. Almost all of those are preventable, and there is a generally speaking in in most scenarios. There is a, a degree of, of either of ignorance and negligence um, on the human side of things that come into, into play and are a factor of that. So please just be educated, um, whether it's wolves, any other wildlife species. Moose is one that you know, we don't commonly think of because it's not a predator. Huge conflict. I mean, we've, we're starting to see that more and more in Aspen here. I'm, I'm more afraid of a moose than I am of any mountain lion or bear I've ever come across. <laughs> They're the, they're the only ones that have ever chased me back into my truck. So um, the last thing I'd offer up is, is just from that human side of things, the things that you can control is just being cognizant and aware of your surroundings, whether that's in town 
or whether you're out in the woods, um, a lot of the times we, we kind of, when we get out there and we're enjoying nature, we start tuning everything else out. And when our dog starts going crazy or when the hairs on the back of our neck start standing up because something's weird, we don't pay attention to those. Um, you know, we're, we get in that, that scenario where we put our earbuds in, tune everything else out and are ignorant to all the sounds, the other warning signs that are out there. And sometimes that leads us in, into a, a, a position where probably avoidable, probably, probably preventable. There were probably things that, that told us that that wasn't the best place to be. Um, but we just, we kind of got too busy with our mind and ourselves to pay attention to everything else that nature was telling us. So, so I would please implore you to, to just, you know, enjoy nature, but be, be aware of what nature's telling you in return. Well said. Thank you for adding that, Matt. Um, we have, I think, one, I think one or two questions that we, we got from, from the public. We just want to uh, go through those, and, and we'll just about be wrapped up. Uh, I think we'll go right back to Matt, and I think uh, Joe, Joe's going to come back on. Joe's back. Um, but this actually goes back to, uh, to you, Matt. Uh, there was a question that was submitted that um, was asking that, are there wolves already in uh, Picking County, and they've, they've heard sightings of, of lone wolves. Is there any truth to that, or can you speak on uh, if there are wolves already in, in the county? So with the hyper-awareness um, of everything that is wolves, you know, we, we've received a lot of reports. Uh, we have wolf reporting form on our website, um, or if people call into our offices, that they, we direct them toward that form so that it gets directed to, to local staff. We've investigated several in the probably in the realm of, um, you can probably qual quantify it by dozens, uh, locally here in, in the Roaring Fork Valley. To date, we've not been able to substantiate any of those as, as confirmed um, wolves in the valley. Doesn't mean they don't exist here, just means that we weren't able to go out and substantiate tracks, scat, something else that was 100% identifiable as a, as a wolf. Um, so there, you know, that, take that as you, as you will. But that's going to happen. We, we're going to get reports, keep reporting them. Realistically, I mean, we have a kind of a, we have a, a, a defined set of eyes and ears and only a, a you know, certain number of staff on hand to go and, and pay attention to things as they're happening out there. Really, truly, in Colorado, we rely on, on everybody in the public I mean, that's the eyes and ears. That's seeing everything and hearing everything that we don't see. So please continue sending those reports in because it is, I mean, that's, that's of great significance for us to be responsible and to go out and, and investigate that, follow up on the phone calls, go out and take a look at and try to um, do scat samples, hair snares, et cetera, to determine what is out there. Thanks for that, Matt. Uh, I'm gonna, there is one uh, that we got, and actually, uh, Joe, go to your back end here, and, and Gary can help with this one too. Uh, there was a question about how adding the wolf back in would affect other predators, the bears, mountain lions, coyotes on the landscape. Joe, I don't know if you want to uh, answer first if there's, if you think, because they, they have lived in other areas in the, in the northern Rockies together, um, and Gary, you can chime in as well, is there any significant effect that's going to happen with wolves being introduced in, in the way that they um, coexist with the other predators that are already here in Colorado? Sure, thank you. And hi, all. Sorry, I just showed up. <laughs> Here I am. Um, I can say that um, 
chances are coyote numbers might go down in areas where there are a lot, uh, wolf numbers are gonna go up. And in areas where coyote numbers go down, you tend to also then in turn find more red fox around. So it could, so there are some interesting, what we call intra-guild interactions that go on amongst the canids. Um, there may very well be some competition at kill sites, right? So we might see um, we might see wolves chasing off a lion off of a kill, and and sometimes vice versa, depending on how many wolves are in a particular pack, right? So that might that might occur. There's certainly, um, as you guys all have mentioned, there 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 are different kinds of predators, right? Bears and um, bears and lions and, and then the canids. Um, so chances are in terms of just total population numbers and those are very, very hard to get. I'm working on getting some of those numbers in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem um, and, and in, in turn in, in Yellowstone trying to figure out what has happened with coyote numbers since wolves have come in and they're very difficult numbers to get at um, and it'll be occurring at a much, much larger scale you know, in terms of landscape. Um, but yeah, there will be interactions. There, there, um, animals avoid each other. It, it, you know, if if there's one predator around and that animal might be is in a pack, and you're just a an ambush predator, as others have noted. Um, you know, those are very different kinds of tactics. But it might also be that animals will just avoid each other. So yeah, there will be interactions for sure. Yeah, uh, there is some evidence from Yellowstone that wolves did affect the distribution and the behavior of, of mountain lions. Um, but it's, as I, you know, back to my mantra, it's complicated. And it, it really is. In some cases, it seemed like there were um, declines in the, the time of day or changes in the time of day of activity of lions, for example. And as Joe mentioned, the change or, or the interactions at kill sites where sometimes uh, wolves would drive lions off of a kill. So there are interactions. There isn't any really good, strong evidence, partly, as Joe said, it's really difficult to get this information to you know, say that there would be changes in numbers of animals. That's unlikely just from the fact that we're starting with animals that are relatively low density to start with, and so they can adapt somewhat to the presence of another predator, but except for in the case of coyotes, and that is something that there is a strong evidence that wolves will cause a decrease in coyote populations and changes in coyote behavior. But there are still coyotes and there are still wolves in Yellowstone as there were for, again, tens of thousands of years. So they, they will be there together. Uh, that's great. I, again, I want to thank uh, all of the panelists. We're going to wrap up here. But listen, the conversation, uh, and this is something that we, I, we all agree on and we were talking about this beforehand, the conversation doesn't stop here. So if, once we go off stage, you know, we'll be in the, all these panels will be in the lobby. You can go to the public house. They're going to be there, you know, as we sort of decompress from preparing for this. Um, but always keep the conversation going and, and keep submitting those questions and keep really engaging with one another as this, uh, as this really goes forward. And that eventually Paul's will be on the ground soon later. So I want to thank Matt Barnes, Gary Skiba, Karen Vardaman, Lenny Klingelsmith and Matt Yamashita, thank you guys for, for rocking in on this panel. Thank you all for listening uh, for all this. And uh, we're going to make our exit. And I believe we have a. Oh, Chris is coming back on? All right. So we're going to head off. And I think okay. we're going to. No, yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you for the a great panel. Thank you again. Another round of applause. Really appreciate it.
Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information.